0: Thank <laughs> you. Welcome to Guerrilla Radio, recorded November 15th, 2023. Well, if there is any value in staying informed, reading the papers, watching television reports, subscribing to online journalists and aggregators, it is to be prepared. But even the most assiduous, meticulously matriculated self education can lead to where the familiar becomes alien and once confident knowledge in cognizance. It's then when the world fails to make sense, we ask, How did we get here? Answering that requires a broader perspective than is possible with our noses pressed against the present. For that, a little historical distance is prescriptive. For example, we can't appreciate why the United States is where it is in November 2023 without knowing what happened November 22nd, 1963. Likewise, understanding Israel's actions today means revealing the real events of November fourth, 1995. Jeremy Kuzmarov is a journalist and author who also serves as managing editor at CovertActionMagazine.com. His book titles include Obama's Unending Wars... The Russians Are Coming Again, written with John Marciano and his latest, fresh from the printers, Warmonger, How Clinton's Maligned Foreign Policy Launched the U.S. Trajectory from Bush 2 to Biden. Jeremy's recent article at CAM, Yigal Amir is Israel's Oswald, examines the day Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin was assassinated and how that foul deed helped make Israel what it is today. Jeremy Kuzmarov In the First Half. And for millions inside the country and out, Canada seems unrecognizable today. From saluting Nazis in Parliament to standing in opposition to peace and human rights resolutions at the United Nations, wither the familiar northern beacon of Bland. James Bizet is a former Canadian ambassador whose tenure in Yugoslavia coincided with that country's 1991 dissolution. And at century's end, he was one of the very few government insiders to oppose NATO's 78-day bombardment of Serbia in the name of humanitarian intervention. James Bissett and Finding Canada in the second half. But first, Jeremy Kazmarev and Israel's infamous sacrifice. Well, welcome back to the program, Jeremy.
1: My pleasure to be with you.
0: Well, it's always my pleasure to speak with you, of course. uh, Now, Jeremy, it's been a long time since Yitzhak Rabin was killed in 1995. Before getting into the circumstances of his uh, unhappy end, though, who, who was Rabin?
1: Well, uh, he had been the IDF, uh, Israeli Defense Force Chief of Staff, in the Six-Day War. Uh, and then, you know, he was with the Israeli Labor Party. And I guess he was best known for signing the Oslo uh, Peace Accord in 1993, uh, which was a flawed document, although uh, it did you know represent a coming together. You know, Yasser Arafat, Clinton helped to bo- broker the agreement, Bill Clinton, the U.S. president, then Rabin and Yasser Arafat were the head of the PLO. And it basically transferred a lot of the rule over the occupied territory that had been acquired in the Six-Day War by Israel to the Palestinian Authority, and it created a Palestinian police force, although it was more under the control of Israel, and Palestinian, a lot of Palestinians felt it was a capitulation by Arafat because it didn't address issues like the right of return and it also uh, or or establish a Palestinian state and the the um, Palestinian police and authority was more in the control of Israel and operating more their proxy. It didn't halt the process of Israeli settlement. Although then uh, Rabin did sign Oslo too, which was granting more concessions to the Palestinians. Uh, so, you know, a later leader like Netanyahu completely abandoned the peace process. He, he
0: doesn't sound like a, a dove to me, uh, given the, uh, his uh, CV that, as you lay out in your article,
1: well, yeah, I don't think it's black and white, just like the Kennedy, you know, some, I think, in Israel, you know, the Israeli liberals will, you know, create a god out of a being, and that. I, I think the same some liberals create a god out of Kennedy. I mean, I think there were a good feature, you know, don't forget politicians are under a lot of pressure. So they can't always act, you know, in a completely morally pure way. I mean, I think he he was moving in the right direction, just like Kennedy had given a nice speech and was moving towards more peaceful relations with the Russians. Of course, yeah, he, you know, he wasn't, uh, I mean, he was a pretty hard line, you know, anti-Palestine. I mean, he was the chief of the IDF, army chief of staff in the Six-Day War when they fought against egypt and they acquired the occupied territories and the you know, israelis committed a lot of atrocities in that war and then you know he made some remarks in the intifada about the palestinian a quote in the article uh something like uh, you know break their legs or something uh you know uh, so i mean I, I, he wasn't a saint i don't think any israeli leaders were uh you know especially in their attitude toward the palestinians uh but on the other hand he was uh, you know, uh, at least willing to sit down with the Palestinian and work out some kind of agreement that could have diffused the tinderbox. I mean, look where we are now. So I think we'd rather a leader like him instead of the far-right elements in Israel that have ruled uh, since the 90s and Netanyahu and Sharon, who just have no regard for, for the Palestinians at all.
0: Yeah, and, and this is where I prefaced uh, the uh, my introduction as uh – the assassination of Rabin being vital into understanding where Israel is now. Am I am I being hyperbolic there, or do you think that had no, this assassination I, not happened, things would be demonstrably different?
1: Yeah, I think it was kind of like the Kennedy assassination in the United States. It created a poisonous environment in the aftermath, and it empowered ultimately the you know far right. I think both in the United States and Israel. So I think it had very negative consequences. In the short term, it brought in, you know, Shimon Peres, who, based on the research I did for this article, was really a bad man. Uh, although he was, in some way, a little more to the left uh, when it came to relation with the Palestinians than, than Rabin was. But although he, when he was a uh, president, because he succeeded, he was the foreign minister under Rabin, and then after Rabin was assassinated. He uh, became Israel's uh, prime minister, although then he lost the 96 election to Netanyahu. But he bombed Lebanon, uh, and he appears to be the one who coordinated the, the assassination of Rabin.
0: Yeah, this is one of the, just one of the amazing claims in your article. And again, as Yigal Amir is Israel's Oswald, um, I remember, I'm old enough to remember the assassination and remember the smirking visage of Yigal Amir as he was uh, given his perp walk and the picture uh, is a feature of your article. Uh, that was a long time ago, though. Most people probably aren't, uh,
1: uh, we don't remember that. Can you tell us who he was? Well, he was uh branding the media as this right wing settler you know who was intent on uh, expanding the, the settlements and was against the peace process. but really, when I looked into it i I did a lot of research and I was guided by some Israelis who had a lot more knowledge about this than I did, and they uh, helped me to write the article, and they pointed me to a study by uh, an author named Barry Chemish, and he exposed that Amir was a, um, an agent of the Israeli uh, equivalent of the uh, FBI, the Shin Bet, or the Shabak, and they kind of created a legend for him. Uh, they, they kind of conditioned him and brainwashed him, just like Sirhan Sirhan was brainwashed. Uh, the Kennedys, uh, you know, Robert Kennedy, and they um, had him fire blanks at, at Rabin, because he didn't actually uh, kill Rabin. The evidence is clear that it was a coordinated conspiracy, and, You because know, uh, uh, officially, you know, Rabin was the night of his death. He was giving a speech at a, a rally in support of the Oslo II and in support of the peace process, and then supposedly Amir shot him, but Amir had been conditioned uh, and really, he was only firing blanks. He was like a decoy in a Patsy to be set up. And then uh, uh, Rabin escaped into his limo. And actually, there had been a plot because um, Rabin and his circle had actually uh, set up a plot to kind of make him like a hero that he survived an assassination attempt. So they were actually staging an assassination that he would survive. That would be a fake assassination that they hoped would strengthen the peace process by making it look like these fanatic settlers had tried to kill him and that these were just fanatics, you know, to make them look bad and make him look good and to advance the peace process. And he thought that this was part of this uh, operation, so then he calmly went into his limo. He was still alive, but then the drive to the hospital was supposed to be uh, well I guess the limo was was heading to the hospital uh, although he was not injured but he was shot in his limo and then it took 22 minutes to get to the hospital when it should have been a, about a five-minute drive uh, so it, it's very clear that he was shot when he got into the limo and they are waiting from all these chin uh, bet agents who were waiting for him at the hospital And they kind of uh, threatened the doctor, like in the JFK assassination, to cover up that he'd been shot in the front, not in the back. Because if Amir shot him, he would have shot him in the back. But he was really shot in the front. So they had to doctor the autopsy, among other things, uh, that they covered up. I mean, there was no evidence of Amir actually firing a bullet. The forensics tests were negative.
0: What did Demir say after the fact about all of this? Didn't he say, "Well, hey, wait a minute, I was I was just firing blanks. I didn't want to hurt anybody."
1: Well, I think the the trial was rigged uh, against him, and it wasn't a proper trial. And I guess he never got to tell his side of the story. And I think, you know, he he made a statement at one point that if I told what I knew, it would blow blow everything up, and it would discredit the entire Israeli establishment. And I guess they didn't want that. So they had a, a brief and rigged trial, and then he was in solitary confinement for like 20 years or something.
0: Yeah, where 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 is he now? He didn't get the Oswald treatment.
1: Uh, he's still yeah, alive, he, isn't he? He's still alive, yeah. Uh, I don't know if he's still in solitary, but he's still in prison.
0: And I get, and presumably he will be for a long time to come. Well, if you've just tuned in, you're listening to Guerrilla Radio. I'm speaking today with Jeremy Kuzmar. Jeremy is the managing editor at Covert Action Magazine. That's covertactionmagazine.com. He's the author of five books on U.S. foreign policy, including Obama's Unending Wars, The Russians Are Coming Again with John Marciano and his newest book just out, like still hot off the presses, Warmonger: How Clinton's Maligned Foreign Policy Launched the US Trajectory from Bush 2 to Biden. Congratulations, Jeremy, on the book coming out. Thank you. Well, uh, and Clinton as we talked about a little bit earlier was intimately involved during his presidency. I mean, as most presidents have been in the in the post-war period with the situation in Israel. I haven't heard uh, any comments from him, though? I imagine it would be supportive about what's going on in Gaza right now. Uh, has he made any comments
1: about that? Do you know? Not to my knowledge. I'm not sure if he's in good health. He may be in declining health. I don't know if his mental uh, capabilities are there anymore, from what I've heard. So he may not. Uh, may, may, if he makes a states- statement, statement, it'll probably be through a spokesman. But Hillary has extremely hawkish views uh, on this conflict and many others, and it's actually rather disturbing. How hawkish she is! Uh, somebody who was supposed to be a liberal and you know a uh, hippie out of the sixties is how they originally presented themselves, but that was an illusion.
0: Yeah, is there is there an indication that that's a result of her mental capabilities uh, declining as well, or are they always no, been I declining?
1: Very hawkish, uh, as was really Bill. I mean, that's the whole premise of the book is that you had an opportunity at the end of the Cold War. Uh, and in fact, Robert S. McNamara, who himself was no dove, he was, in fact, the architect of the Vietnam War. But he said, you know, now the Cold War is over. We have the opportunity for a peace dividend and we should, you know, can reinvest. You know, the Soviet threat is extinguished or over. We can finally reinvest uh, invest our money, you know, in rebuilding the American economy and, and, and social welfare programs. This is coming from Robert McNamara, but unfortunately, Clinton, um, you know, uh, revived huge military budgets while promoting austerity measures effectively. I mean, he gutted the welfare program and he deregulated the banking system. And he invented new pretexts for wars at the end of the Cold War. And that was, you know, humanitarian intervention. We have to stop genocide. But you know, he presented the conflicts like in the Balkans or Rwanda in a very one-sided way—the good versus evil. You know, the Serbs were supposedly evil, led by this uh, new Hitler, Milosevic. But really, the Serbs have been trying to keep the Yugoslav Federation together. And the worst war crimes were committed by the Croats and ethnic cleansing. And the Muslim, uh, you know, Serbs did commit atrocity, but they were also victims of Muslim extremists whom the US was supporting. And the US and Clinton administration even helped mobilize Al Qaeda. Uh, to fight against uh, the Serbs, so it really was not black and white as Clinton presented it, and the U.S. agenda was to break up Yugoslavia, which had been a strong independent state on T- uh, under Tito in the you know, 50s, 60s, and 70s, uh, and so they could dominate uh, the region, establish military bases as they did in Kosovo after the bombing of Kosovo, so that's one you know, key example of the hawkish, imperialistic foreign policy that Clinton embraced. And in the Middle East, yeah, he uh, you know, he expanded the war on terror of Reagan and he used a lot of the same methods that would be, later became famous under Bush. He started using that, like uh, extraordinary rendition and kidnapping suspects who hadn't even been tried and taking them to countries where it was known they'd be tortured, like Egypt under Hosni Mubarak, who was close... American ally in those days. Uh, So it was not a very savory uh, foreign policy at all. Uh, that's the kind of premise of the book you know, It set the groundwork for a lot of the disasters to come
0: You mentioned uh, Barry Chamish, uh and his book As part of the research for your article And again it's Yigal Amir Is Israel's Oswald And that's at CovertActionMagazine.com His book came out in 2000 This is the first I've ever heard of This idea that the assassination Of Rabin was anything but How it was presented and how you Elucidated Um is Chamish still alive, and is he following up on this?
1: Yeah, it may be better known in Israel uh, than in the United States. I, I believe he's passed away uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, there are other researchers uh, who have followed along similar uh, line as him. I, I think some of the is published online, and there are insiders you know, still around who have knowledge about this. Yeah, it was like the Kennedy assassination. A lot of other people closely associated with it. Also, die mysterious deaths, and some of the doctors were either threatened or even kill the members of their families killed to keep all this secret. Uh, so the tally of deaths was very, very high, and you know uh, Shimon Peres may have been alleged was very closely uh, linked with French intelligence. Uh, so you know there may have been foreign intelligence service and interest behind this who didn't like Rabin. And maybe his movement towards, um, you know, peace with the Palestinians, uh, even though he had been somewhat of a hardliner in an earlier career. You know, started as a socialist, you know, there were a lot of socialists and idealists when the country was founded. But, I mean, gradually, I think they took a harder edge, you know, with the conflicts with the Palestinian Arab. They took a decidedly negative attitude. Uh, toward the Palestinian Arabs, and you don't get really many politicians uh, with very liberal outlook uh, succeeding in Israeli politics. So, you know, I think Rabin was more or less a hardliner throughout his career. Again, he'd been chief of staff of the IDF in the Six-Day War. He made some comments about the Intifada, about, you know, going after Palestinians, you know, breaking their knees. I mean, so he wasn't a soft-hearted liberal, and, you know, there were a momentum. Against, there was, I think, uh political mobilization against the peace process and the measures he had signed. So he may have been starting to backtrack, whether under pressure or, uh, you know, probably for political reasons, maybe he was, he was backing off or backtracking. But, you know, he was killed, so we can't know what would have happened under his leadership. Uh, I mean, the peace process was stalled when Netanyahu came in in 96 and apparently there was Netanyahu may have blackmailed Perez uh, that he knew about Perez's role in Rabin's assassination and others in in Netanyahu's circle and they threatened to go public if he didn't campaign effectively at which in the 96 election From what I was told by Israeli insider sources, um, Perez basically conceded the election to Netanyahu and even told his Arab supporters to vote for Netanyahu or not to vote for him because I guess he would have been exposed and his own life was on on the line. And Netanyahu abandoned the peace process, although there was a brief period when Ehud Barak was in that the peace process of Rabin was extended. And there were some breakthroughs in the last uh, year of Clinton's presidency, and there were some relatively generous deal, the most generous deals Israel has ever offered to the Palestinians. And I think Arafat was, uh, you know, considering it. But then, uh, you know, uh, Sharon came in and, and and, and visited a Muslim holy ground, and that triggered the second intifada, and the peace process was over. So uh, and it's hard to say what would have happened. You know, sometimes uh, we, we attach huge political significance to these assassinations, like in the case of Kennedy. It may also just be palace intrigues going on, and, uh, you know, power rivalries playing out, because Kennedy, you know, I think there's a certain sentimentality like in Oliver Stone crowd. And, and I, I have great respect for Stone, and I agree with him on a lot of political issues. And, and I think there are differences with Kennedy and Johnson, but I, I think the one flaw of Stone and others that they, they have this sentimentality, and they think Kennedy is this great peacenik and anti-imperialist, when really he was, I don't think he was. I mean, he did a lot of bad things in his presidency. He had, his appointments were... Uh, Tied with the Rockefeller interests, you know, he appointed Robert McNamara, people like that, uh, and he, you know, wanted to take it into North Vietnam, Uh, although he did give a nice speech, uh, uh, you know, saying he wanted to ease tension after the Cuban Missile Crisis and, and reach out to the Russians. So, but again, I think there may be some parallel with Rabin is that I think, you know, liberals tend to idealize him when really Rabin may not have been that different. Uh, from other leaders in Israel, he was backtracking even on some of the concession at Oslo, which really didn't go that far because it, it basically get, gave a, a, a veneer to the colonial occupation that made it look like the Arabs were in control, but really Israel was pulling still pulling the levers through the Palestinian Authority. Uh, so he wasn't, you know... Uh, entirely, you know, he wasn't pro-Palestine. And then, yeah, he may have even been backtracking. So this could have been, in large part, just a palace coup by by Perez and his people. Um, And then, you know, Israel politics had its own momentum after, just like in the case of American politics. Uh, uh, There's grounds to believe it was a palace coup that Johnson was going to be dropped from the ticket. And then he played a key role in removing Kennedy, largely to save his own career and elevate himself to the presidency. And yes, he adopted some more aggressive policies, but there was some continuity between Kennedy and Johnson as far as their policies. So.
0: Well, it, that is the most, Fascinating part of your article, and again, it's Yigal Amir is Israel's Oswald at CovertActionMagazine.com is uh, Shimon Perez and the role of Perez, as you allege, and as comes from uh, Barry Chalmish's book, in the assassination, and also the the vulnerability that he had was more than just his involvement in the assassination, uh, you know, that was used as leverage against him, but also the role of His backers, as alleged, French intelligence. What (laughs) that really gobsmacked me. What possible role could the French be playing in the leadership of Israel, and especially in the personage of Shimon Peres?
1: Well, first, yeah, begs for more more investigation, uh, understanding. It may simply be that, and and Peres was actually to Rabin's left when it came to. Like things like Oslo, I think he was more even more in favor of a peace process than Rabin was. Uh, it may simply be that, yeah, you know French uh, could gain more control over the country uh, through him. You know he was more their asset. Um, uh, so I you know I don't know what what they stood to gain. And then you know he didn't last that long in power. Because he may have been blackmailed he lost the 96 election and then symbolically he was later promoted as a president uh, so it didn't entirely work out if you know if if his goal was Machiavellian and, and to be in power for a long time that didn't really work out that well and his policy may not have been that different than. Uh, than Rabin, yeah, and both, from what I've read, they both were in the process of, you know, Rabin was kind of like a Clinton, Tony Blair, in that he was privatizing a lot of Israel's economy, you know, he was the Labour Party, but they really had become neoliberal, and, but Perez continued what Rabin was doing, so, there's not a huge difference in their policies, uh, there is a bit of difference between the Israel Labor Party and the Likud Party and Netanyahu and Sharon, much more extreme and aggressive. Um, but they, they came in anyway. So, yeah, it's, it's hard to really judge the political uh, dynamic here and consequences uh, it may just be kind of palace intrigues, and you know it gets to the heart of this question, this notion of American or Israeli exceptionalism. You know these countries present themselves as morally superior in these great democracies, but they have palace intrigues and coups and power-hungry people, just like in African countries or Middle East countries or Russia or China. And unfortunately, you know, it's human nature and, and politics in uh, uh, all every country and. Uh, we're not morally superior in the U.S. or Israel. We we have these palace intrigues as well, and bloodthirsty people who will kill to get in office and kill a lot uh, of others to cover up their crimes and use blackmail. And it happened in American politics. It happened in Israeli politics. It happened in African politics. Uh, but but U.S. and Israel are not morally superior. As they present themselves. Uh, and, and want to go around, you know, spreading democracy, which they they don't do anyway. So,
0: <laughs> well, right now it sounds more like the Roman court of Caligula than what we're seeing today.
1: Exactly. In, yeah. in in the notes to your article,
0: you uh, you cite Max Blumenthal uh, at the 20 year anniversary of the assassination, and you uh, cite a, a quote of his of uh, Yitzhak Rabin's saying he would like to see. Gaza drown in the sea. Well, that that seems to be still the sentiment in the ruling uh, corridors of power in Israel right now. It's pretty hard to deny this is what they're doing, although some still stick to the view that what's happening in Gaza right now is just a
1: response to the
0: Hamas attack. What's your view?
1: Well, yeah, I, I think it's interesting to look at the being presidency because you see he's not that different. That That's a characteristic view of the Israeli ruling class, you know, for many years now, and there's not such a huge difference between the Labour Party and the Likud in that attitude, and that's similar in the United States. Unfortunately, there are very little, you know, Hillary Clinton, the Democrat, and you just quoted her, she has a very dismissive view about the Palestinians. She's an extreme war hawk. When it comes to the Middle East or Russia, she's a Russophobe. She or coordinated a pivot to Asia. Uh, that Even now, I read today that the intellectual architect admitted that that was a huge mistake too militaristic, too confrontational to China. They should have been in favor of uh, trying to, you know, cultivate a good relation with China. So, but Clinton, the Democrat, I mean, and we think of the Republican as these far-right, you know, neo-fascists uh, who are going to start wars or World War Three. and Trump. The maniac, but how different are the Democrat? You know, if you look at Obama, Clinton, Biden, they've been very, very aggressive, militaristic. Their attitude towards foreign affairs is very similar to the Republicans. And that's what you have, unfortunately, in Israel. Uh, Israel's like evolved into a mirror image of the United States and the pathologies of its political you know system where both parties are equally horrible. I, I see parallels you know, if you analyze the two countries and unfortunately that in Israel it's playing out today the uh, hatred for the palestinians is leading to horrific atrocities and the complete you know breakdown of the peace process in the 90s has set the groundwork for for this uh, conflict today uh and they haven't even made any pretense of you know, trying to uh, you know, co- co- coexist with the Palestinians and work some kind of diplomatic arrangement, and they just imposed the harsh sanction and embargo and restricted the freedom of movement to the point where you know people compared Gaza to a prison, and that this was a prison breakout. And of course, there are question marks. I don't know if we have time to go into about what really happened on October 7th. How could Hamas have gotten through the Israeli security barrier and whether the Netanyahu government, which was desperate uh, because it was facing protests, because the neoliberal policies started under Rabin had created a huge inequality in Israel and unhappiness among the populace. And then they were resorting to more and more authoritarian methods. Uh, and this was leading to mass protests.
0: Well, well, Jeremy, we are fast out of time. Uh, War how Clinton's malign. Foreign Policy Launch, The U.S. Trajectory from Bush 2 to Biden, is your new book. How do people get it?
1: Uh, You can find it at Clarity Press or on Amazon. And yeah, you can find my articles at Covert Action Magazine or my website, jeremykuzmarov.com.
0: Well, thanks a lot for coming on again, Jeremy. And I want everyone else to stick around because I'm going to be talking to former Canadian Ambassador Joe Bissett uh, he was the ambassador to Yugoslavia when uh, when that all fell apart so many years ago. And uh, his take on uh, what's happening right now in Gaza and Canada's position on that. Okay. Thanks yeah, again.
1: I quote him in my book in the Balkan chapter, so I'd be very interested to hear his perspective Yeah, further. Come, coming straight up. Thanks a lot, Jeremy. <laughs>
0: Moscow, Tokyo, New York, Gorilla Radio is everywhere at Gorilla-Radio.com everywhere, all the time. Millions inside the country and out, Canada seems unrecognizable today. From saluting Nazis in Parliament to standing in opposition to peace and human rights resolutions at the United Nations, whither the familiar northern beacon of bland? James Bizet is a former Canadian ambassador whose tenure in Yugoslavia coincided with that country's 1991 dissolution. And at century's end, he was one of the very few government insiders to oppose NATO's 78-day bombardment of Serbia in the name of humanitarian intervention. Welcome back to the program,
2: Joe. Thank you very much. Good to be back.
0: Well, it's great to speak with you. Now, Joe, Gaza is in flames. The people are brutalized uh, for more than a month now. Canada has stood beside Israel all the way in this. As as a former diplomat, can you help me understand why this country is such an adamantine supporter of Israel, despite that nation's appalling actions up to
2: now? Well, you know, uh, I have a reputation of being a bit of a rebel certainly not always agreeing with what the government tells us. But on on this issue, I think that uh, as far as Israel is concerned, our Prime Minister Trudeau uh, has uh, demanded certain conditions that uh, the Israelis uh, are quite puzzled about. Because as you say, normally, and indeed at the beginning, uh, we stood firmly with the United States, with England, with Europe uh, on... uh, Supporting Israel, but uh, yesterday our prime minister, although I didn't know it, I have just read about it. Uh, Trudeau said to uh, Netanyahu, "Israel, quote, Israel must stop this killing of women and children and babies in Gaza. Intern- the the, the uh, price of justice uh, cannot be continued uh, suffering of all the Palestinians." And then he went on to say, you know, the world is, is uh, watching you and uh, you've got to do something about this bombing and killing of uh, innocent people. That has re- already uh, received a uh, rebuke uh, from uh, Netanyahu. So in some sense, uh, you are right that uh, Canada has formally stood uh, alongside of the United States and uh, uh, Britain and Europe and many other countries. In defending Israel and what they're doing in Gaza, uh, but the, the Canadian position has been up and down. And any any support that uh, Trudeau has given at the beginning to Israel seems somewhat muted by the comments he made yesterday. Uh, comments that, uh, as I said, uh, Israel has has really charged him with being, uh, while being uh, uh, unable to understand why. Israel is doing what they're doing. Definitely our, our position has changed and has be, has become a, a little more evenly uh, expressed. Uh, the reason for that, of course, is that uh, there's a possible election coming up and uh, the Jewish vote in Canada is very small. Uh, there's only about 400,000 Jews in Canada compared to several well, almost, I would think, certainly over a million uh, uh, Muslims who happen to be concentrated in the uh, greater Toronto area. uh, And that has to be taken into consideration by uh, Prime Minister Trudeau. So he's softening his position, supporting Israel, and is uh, swinging both ways. Not surprising, in my view, because generally speaking, Canada has had for some time now uh, foreign policy dominated by diaspora. Uh, and you know you can go down the list. We've taken in large numbers of Tamils, so now we are prepared, you know, to condemn uh, anyone who who uh, uh, doesn't treat them well at home.
0: The Jewish political influence in Canada uh, is larger than the numbers would imply, as it is in, in America and in the and the other Western capitals. The Zionist support, though, separate from the Jewish uh, popular support of what Israel is doing and even Israel generally, that's not monolithic, we must remember. But also, the Zion uh, support of Zionism is not restricted just to Jewish people. Uh, There's many Christian Zionists, for example, that would support uh, Trudeau as well. So, I mean, yeah, I understand that he's playing both sides of a coin. He is a politician after all. But in doing this, now, Canada's much-wanted position has always been the rule of law. We hear it all the time. Uh, The rule of law doesn't seem to be followed uh, in this instance. And even though after 40 days, Trudeau, uh, the prime minister, did come out and with some measured uh, criticism of Israeli action, he only called for maximum restraint, quote, maximum restraint. He didn't call for an immediate ceasefire. And he also hasn't used the G word, the genocide word uh which a lot of other uh people not least of which is the UN special rapporteur on human rights who just resigned uh in protest of the lack of action uh, craig mckayber uh that say that this is a clear-cut case of genocide what we see going on in gaza the ethnic cleansing the uh, indiscriminate killing and the targeted killing of civilians doctors uh, uh, in hospitals even uh, what's your assessment, Joe, of the the genocide and what that word, should it be invoked by Canada or any other nation, what that would set into motion internationally?
2: Well, I don't think it is genocide. I mean, I think the Israelis have been pretty clear that uh, they had declared war on uh, Hamas and they are committed to destroying Hamas. Uh, they would pull no punches uh, doing that. All of the bombing of uh, the Second World War uh, killed thousands, if not millions, of civilians. If you go to war, you've got to win it, and and the Israelis are doing uh, what they seem to feel is necessary. To but that's over... it's
0: it's entirely not proportional, and there is the law of proportionality. And in this case, you have a, a what's more like a prison break, what Hamas did than a declaration of war on Israel. They certainly don't have the means to wage a war against the sixth largest army in the world, uh, obviously. And we're seeing the kinds of weapons deployed against the kinds of targets. If Israel says that Hamas is hiding under a hospital, well, that still doesn't allow that they blow up a hospital. Uh, That that can't be.
2: Well, I mean, they haven't blown up a hospital. I think they've been very careful about that. They've blown up several hospitals. I think that's beside the point, though. Uh, the point is that uh, Israel, since its beginning in 1948, has been attacked uh, you know several times uh, by uh, our neighbors. And that's going to continue. Uh, and what you get now across the world, really, is a large all Muslims support uh, the, the, uh, uh, <coughs> the people of Gaza. They supported solidly, uh, despite the outrageous attack on, on the uh, uh, Israeli civilians. Uh, these are barbarous acts, beheading of children, the raping of women. Uh, it, it was horrific. Uh, and, uh, you know, the part of the problem, I think, uh, with something like this is we don't see the results. We're told about these killings, but you have to actually see them to realize how horrible it really was. Uh, Look, I remember as a boy of 13 seeing the Jews uh, that uh, were uh, found in Belsen, bodies after bodies, uh, skinny rakes, uh, bodies piled up and being pushed into mass graves. Uh, We saw that with our own eyes, and it gave me a vivid image of what the Holocaust was all about. The people that are demonstrating in the streets that are non-Muslim don't know what a dead man looks like. Uh, we've got a generation of children that you know are more concerned about their u phones or iPhones than they are about really getting at the facts so no but I, I but on those
0: uh, but on those phones, Joe, we are seeing what's going on we're seeing daily images of civilians blown into pieces, parents in Gaza carrying their children from blown up hospitals in pieces in plastic bags these are some Mm -hmm. of the images that we're actually seeing all the time and about those charges on the israeli side now israel is is famous for its Hasbara and its its propaganda Uh, netanyahu in in dressing down the prime minister's tepid remarks of of yesterday said uh, and i'll quote him he says it's not israel that's deliberately targeting civilians but hamas that beheaded burned and massacred civilians In the worst horrors perpetrated on Jews since the Holocaust, just as you described. But Joe, those claims have been proven false, that these things didn't happen. These are creations of Israeli propaganda. Now, there were civilians that were killed, and many of them. There were soldiers that were killed, and many of them as well. And Israel itself Using its infamous Hannibal directive admits that its tank crews and helicopter crews fired into the kibbutzes, trying to kill Hamas, uh, soldiers and were killing everybody. This is the, the Hannibal doctrine that says it's better that Israelis be killed by Israelis than taken prisoner and held hostage. So we, we can't judge, uh, uh, the situation by what's coming out of Netanyahu's mouth or his government's. But even if that was true, even if everything that Netanyahu says was that happened did happen as he describes it, which is it's demonstrably false, it still doesn't justify, in my mind, and I think in the mind of uh, international legal scholars, the kind of reaction we're seeing. How could it?
2: Well, it could have because it's been going on for a hell of a long time. That's why uh, there is a one one objective of uh, not only the Palestinians but Muslims as a whole, whether it's in uh, Pakistan or wherever, that Israel has got to be eliminated. Now they're going to be prepared to do that. And they've tried it four, five, six times. They're going to continue to try it. And uh, uh, what I see here now is just the beginning uh, of a very serious global conflict, which will, will be Islam against the West. Uh, and that's, I think, happening and, and will continue to happen. Uh, the Koran, in effect, is the word of Allah, the word of God. And it is very clear about the major enemy of Islam is the Jews, and they must be eliminated. Uh, there's a passage not of the Koran, but of the, the following part of it, in, in which if you are a stone or a tree, and a Jew comes to hide behind, beside you or behind you, call out and call those to come and kill, you, kill the Jew. Uh, that's inherent in Islam. Uh, we pretend that you know uh, uh, Islam is just another religion, but one of the parts of the Koran is that if Muslims uh, conquer or are in one of their original lands, and that land is taken away, then they must recover. They must take it back. And that's basically the principle of the the Islamic attack on this new small country, 9 million people, but a model of democracy uh, and and, uh, uh, clean living, if you want to put it that way. Uh, All of the neighbors are poor. Israel is probably one of the only part of the Middle East that doesn't sit on oil, and yet they're they're in one of the top range uh, countries of the world. There are uh, at least a million, or perhaps more than uh, that, Arabs Muslims living in Israel. They are members of they are citizens of Israel. They serve in Parliament. They go through democratic elections. Many of them are serving in the, the Israel Defense Forces. None of them want to move out to neighboring countries. Uh, none of the Muslim countries, except, you know, the Gulf area, are are poor or are democratic. There are 15 Arab countries, 15, that the death penalty is still there on the books uh, if someone is caught to be gay. Well, in, we can in talk Hamas, about... Well, in yeah, Hamas but Joe, itself, this, this distracts from... Just on, in Hamas itself, not long ago... A gay man was beheaded because he was found to be gay. One of the senior uh, Hamas officers themselves was found out having slept with another man, and he was executed. That's the sort of thing you're going to get from uh, Hamas. And the people there, 70% roughly, voted for Hamas.
0: Well, right now, Joe, Hamas and and its uh, theocratic doctrine isn't really at issue. What's at issue is that civilians are being killed by the Israeli military wantonly. Now to say that Islam is an inherently violent religion, uh, you can pick up doctrine from any religion that says it's okay to kill the other if you go far enough back it can be quite barbaric uh protestants uh executed heretics as well as catholics and you know nobody wants to go into the spanish <laughs> inquisition you know i oh. mean th- that that is disingenuous and and it's off it's off no, point no, sorry, it's yes, off sir. it's you're, off point in my
2: in, just, con- let,
0: have you been watching well,
2: and, and uh, well, just a minute in 1948, when the British mandate and the Brits pulled out, Iraq, uh, uh, Egypt, Jordan, uh, Libya, uh, not Libya, but uh, Lebanon, uh, all attacked uh, Israel, who didn't even have a defense force at that time. And they they turned that uh, all of those hours back and continued with their growth. Uh, but, but the that's, nac- that's just the first attack. Then the first, you had the six-day war. Then you had... Uh, The one in uh, 2005, every attempt will be made by Islam to eliminate Israel. They are not going to give up. And the closer we came uh, to getting some of the Arab countries uh, to accept the fact that Israel is there and is going to stay there, like Morocco, who did exchange ambassadors, like Saudi Arabia, where there was a negotiating meeting going on. And it was why Hamas attacked at that time to make it impossible for any Arab country now to recognize Israel. So, I mean, the game is there. And it's not going to stop. Uh, talk about bombing civilians. If you're in a war, you're going to be bombed. That's the way it is. It's a terrible thing. But look at Dresden during the Second World War. Not well, the, yeah.
0: and, and these are comparisons that the Israeli Hasbara, the propaganda campaign, have made. But, Joe... The, The Israeli government has also said, uh, and certain of its uh, agents, that this is Nakba 2.0 that is being Mm -hmm. visited upon Gaza right now. Well, for those that don't know, the Nakba 1.0 was, Nakba is uh, loosely translated as the Great Catastrophe. This was the original ethnic cleansing of Palestine. Those wars that you mentioned mounted by the neighbors of what would become Israel— were reacting to the forced displacement and the theft of land plus the murder and uh, uh, commit, committing of all manner of atrocities as they tend to be done in these situations against the civilian population as they were driven into Gaza in the first place, uh, this is admitted by Israel. So, I mean, you know, to say that, oh, all of Israel's neighbors just don't like Jews is, is disingenuous at, at the very least.
2: What you're really saying is that Israel should pack up and go back somewhere. That isn't any, that's not possible. Well, Uh, what I'm saying, Joe, is that they should stop. Or even worse than that, you you seem to be able to say that if Hamas wins this war, there'll be any Israelis left on earth. No, there won't. Because Hamas is committed to killing Israel. Well, well,
0: let me clarify. And have done
2: so, done so and done so in an animal-like manner.
0: Well, let me clarify. They were bombing
2: people; they were beheading people. They that's, were cutting them off. That's they were been burning proven... them alive.
0: Well, I'll let me let me explain what I believe. The, the uh, I believe that Israel should stop bombing the civilians right now. The targeting of universities, the targeting of mosques and churches and hospitals and clinics and ambulances and bakeries, and all the things necessary for civil life to go on. And the perpetrator of this crime, a vastly superior entity, saying that the people must leave their homes and and vacate a whole region of their home area. Do you see any similarities between what happened in Yugoslavia and what's happening today in Gaza?
2: No, I I really don't. I mean, uh, the Serbs were not Bothering anybody. They weren't massacring people. That was done uh, by the United States uh, to give NATO a, a new role, uh, a, a role that would enable the United States to use NATO as its major foreign policy objectives and going into any country that the US did not respect or want to exist to overpower. Uh, and yes, my feelings about the bombing. Uh, it still exists. And uh, I, I see similar things going on in Ukraine. Uh, it's time that Canadians and others in the world decided to have some peace. I respect what you're saying, or your views, you've got them, but it doesn't mean to say we should be killing each other or trying to eliminate a state that is doing extremely well in the Middle East and others around them should emulate them, get rid of the the religious powers that keeps them down into misery and, and go forward and, and uh, get the country and their citizens to live properly and freely, which is not happening in most of the Arab states.
0: Well, in Israel itself, the nature of politics there is changing and changing ra- uh, radically. Uh, Netanyahu's coalition has uh, religious extremists and, and that's Absolutely. argued why, why they are following the course they are right now is because it's, it's advertised itself as a religious state and it's acting as, uh, you know, Netanyahu himself is quoting the, the, Torah and and passages from their scriptures uh, even now about the end of the world. And it seems that Israel then, if if what you're saying about the Arab states, that the secular ones that were destroyed by the West in recent years, incidentally, uh, it seems more true in Israel than
2: it does anywhere else. You seem to be suggesting that all of the responsibility here of the killing and the bombing and the terrible things that are going on is the fault of Israel. What about Hamas? Where does that stand? Why is it that uh, Egypt, Jordan, uh, Lebanon uh, will not take uh, Palestinian refugees? Uh, The first mob of refugees that went into Syria uh, caused trouble. So the uh, father of the current is a Syrian uh, leader. Kicked them out. They went to Lebanon. What did they do in Lebanon? Cause serious trouble.
0: Oh, geez, Joe, I, I, I no. can't, I can't vilify the victims here, and especially repeating the tropes of the Israeli. Not pro- pro-
1: it, absolutely, not they,
0: Look, they, they, these are things uh, being said. Uh, these are things being said by the Israeli propaganda, and yes, Israel no, is they're, responsible. They're
2: historic facts. They are historic facts. <laughs> Hamas you Let me, give you, another, let me give you another example. All right. The latest, more recent refugee uh, episode with Canada was when the Syrian refugees got out and got into Turkey and Lebanon. And our prime minister at the time said, we must help. We'll take 20,000 Syrian refugees. None of them were still in uh, Syria. They were all out and relatively safe. Uh, He said, we'll take 20,000. And of course, we have to get them in before Christmas. Why? Why before Christmas? Because if they got in before Christmas, they would be able to vote in this coming election of ours, and I'm sure probably more than twenty thousand of them now, because they're bringing in their relatives in large numbers. Uh, that'll be that will have a very important impact on our election, and and that's why I started out this episode of ours by saying our foreign policy isn't a foreign policy; it is a diaspora foreign policy, if. We've got camels. we got. We want their vote. If we've got Sikhs, we want their vote. We've got Syrians, we want their vote. And, and it goes down the list. Uh, that, that's part of the problem with all of this. But the major problem is we've got to stop all of this killing to resolve disputes. Uh, I'm not in favor of Gaza kids being blown to pieces, but I understand who's responsible, and the responsibility rests with Hamas not with Israel. Israel is defending itself. Hamas is trying to take over and kill people, in, or all of the people, if they could, in Israel. That's a big difference between what uh, the Israelis are doing now.
0: Well, we can agree on that, Joe, that we would like to see the war and the killing stop. Um, How we go about that, I think, is a matter of negotiation, as it always is. And this is your experience in the ambassadorial service of this country. It serves you to know more about that process than certainly I know about it. This country, as you mentioned, is changing in many different ways. Our foreign policy is being dictated, I agree, from foreign interests, though I don't think it's from the immigrant community. I think it's from the United States that dictate what Canada does and where they send the military. In fact, our military is more than interoperable with the United States military. It is actually controlled by them at the highest levels, as is our political process.
2: But Joe, we've only I got... A- I do agree with you on that. I mean, that's, that's quite evident. The only, the only kind of amusing part of that is we haven't got a military.
0: Well, well, Canadian uh, special forces uh, are well regarded. JTF-2 is actually rep- reputedly being deployed within Gaza even now. And those uh, um, flights that the Canadian government was paying to um, extricate Canadian citizens from Israel was also taking in uh, soldiers a canadian soldiery so they would be offended i think joe to to hear your comment but i don't, I don't so, think
2: those soldiers would find me offensive they would they'd find me as a supporter um, yeah you know well, we death. do have a military but it's
0: uh, thankfully it's nothing like the americans um joe so in our final 2 minutes here how does canada chart a peaceful course then do you think diplomatically independent of both uh, uh, political influences within the country and without?
2: Well, uh, I told you what I uh, you know, uh, I think we have a diaspora foreign policy. We we are, we uh don't really count in the world as, as we once did. At the end of the Second World War, we had uh, the fourth largest navy in the world. We had a powerful air force. Uh, all of that's gone down the drain because we don't have to have any protection. We've got it. We've got a southern neighbor who looks after us. And that's why we're not paying up our 2% in in NATO and probably never will. We don't have to because we've got protection from the United States. And that's why we rely entirely on it and why we don't stand up as we should have done at NATO meetings and say, wait a minute. The NATO charter says that NATO will not use or even threaten to use force in the resolution of international disputes. It's purely a defensive organization. Uh, And we completely ignored that because Bill Clinton, the president of the United States, decided that uh, NATO should have a a different purpose. And he changed that on on, uh, NATO's 50th birthday in Washington, where he said, from now on, boys, we are going to intervene militarily wherever and whenever we decide to do so. Screw Article One of the treaty. Uh, And that's... That stands today. Uh, we, we follow and do what the United States tells us to.
0: Well, Everybody's, Joe
2: Ye- everybody's worried about uh, Putin. Everybody's worried about Netanyahu. Everybody's worried about the uh, leader in China. Why doesn't someone get a bit concerned when the United States leader is a senile old gangster? Uh, and we pretend that he's the president of the United States. That's what we have to worry about.
0: Well, and I'm certainly worried about it. Thanks, Joe, for coming on again. Forgive uh, the bristliness of our interchange on this, uh, I hope, and I no, hope no, we can no, speak again. I, I see. What the,
2: that's what the gorilla is all about, isn't
0: it? I'm pounding my chest today, and I respect your long experience no <laughs> less than when we began. And I do hope we can talk again. Thanks again, Joe.
2: Yeah, no, not at all. It's a great pleasure to be on.
0: All right. Until the next time, then when nothing is as it's presented. It's a bit like discovering that your favorite uncle that's taken you for walks in the park, that he's he's really a serial abuser. You need a different source. Guerrilla Radio, a century of news every Thursday and Saturday.